my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Daniel Hendrick Experience. Every Sunday, interviewing internationally acclaimed opera singers. And today, we are not going to let you down. World-famous international tenor Chris Merritt is going to be with us. Well, Chris is renowned as one of opera's leading Italian bel canto tenors. He is cherished for his great virtuosity and the distinctive timbre, and my friends, an absolutely brilliant top. This top register of his voice just seems to go on from days. Following his remarkable early career, Chris Merritt continues to set standards with numerous roles of the late 19th and early 20th century repertoire. From the early 1980s on, Chris Merritt achieved international acclaim as one of the most sought-after interpreters of the tenor protagonist by Rossini, Bellini, and the great Domizetti. In 1981, he performed Arturo in Bellini's I Puritani, one of his favorite parts at the New York City Opera, followed by his debuts at the Vienna State Opera, Carnegie Hall, and Opera National in Paris. Other highly acclaimed guest appearances led him to the Royal Opera House and the Royal Festival Hall in London, the Metropolitan Opera, the Chicago Lyric Opera, the San Francisco Opera, the Hamburg State Opera, and the Rossini Opera Festival in Passato and Teatro alla Scala in Milano, where he appeared in two successful years, 1988 and 1989, under the illustrious baton of Riccardo Muti. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really excited to get the backstory from Chris about how he developed this incredible technique and how he was able to apply it for so many years all over the world. Let's bring in the great Chris Merritt. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as advertised, the legend is here with us. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Mr. Chris Merritt to the show. Fratello mio, mille grazie. Oh, grazie a te. Thank you for being here. Un grande honor. It's a great honor. Oh, honor. thank you. Thank you. Uh, I said a few words to you in Italian because I saw an interview with you when you were speaking in Italian, and I knew that uh, you spoke Italian by watching you there. Yeah. So. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I speak Italian too, <clears throat> but I live in Germany, so I speak German too. So I, I heard that as well. So we went from being an Oklahoma City boy to living in Germany. Can you just kind of give us, before we get into the nitty-gritty details of stuff, tell us how in the hell did you do that? What? Oh, well, Germany has been a long story uh, because as soon as I finished with mm. studying back at home in Oklahoma City, uh, I had the chance to audition around in Europe and it was a Europe, it was a German-Austrian-based system uh, that I had done summer study with and had introduced me to agents and managers. But this was back in 77, 76, actually, in mm -hmm. 76. And so I met my first agents and managers uh, in Vienna and in Munich, and I think in 
Frankfurt. I can't remember where the other one was. But anyway, I was sent around on auditions in 76 to try to get a position for the 77, starting the 77 season. So I got a couple of offers and we chose which one to start with. And then I went back home, finished some more studies and then came back to Europe and started that contract that started in 77. And that was in Salzburg, Austria. And uh, so that kind of started off everything that was Germanic, Austrian, Germanic, let's say, uh, to do with my career. That's where I started. Um, Salzburg, Austria, I was there. We were there for three years, my ex-wife and I. My Two of my two children were born in Salzburg. And then we moved on to Augsburg. And it turned out that Salzburg and Augsburg were the two Mozart cities. Mozart was born in Augsburg, and his father, Leopold Mozart, was born in Augsburg. So it was kind of unbeknownst to me, I was there in that little circle of they're not that far apart they're like three hours apart and that set me up for the germanic system then after that uh, after a while those six years that i was there then i went international and that included a lot of the other um of other countries you know italy spain america canada wherever but it still graduated back or gravitated back to germany uh, in 2000, and I moved back to Germany, uh, into Hamburg here, and I've been here in Hamburg ever since. So I've been here now 23 years. But in the interim, we moved back to the United States, put our children in school uh, in the United States in Baltimore, and uh, I lived there for about 17 years, and then before I moved back here to Hamburg. So that's kind of the <clears throat> progression of coming. Coming to Germanic lands, going back to the USA, going international, and then finally coming back here to Hamburg, Germany now, where I am now. Wow. Fascinating. <clears throat> Wonderful. It's been a fun <laughs> ride. <laughs> that is really cool. Well, my wife and I just moved here to Phoenix, oh, about three years ago from San Diego, which is where my base was through most of my career. Uh, uh -huh. that's where my kids were raised there. But, uh, next year we're actually moving to San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. Oh, wow. Uh, and we're, we're that's very, nice. we're very excited about that. And my wife's a international artist. So we're going to open a little art gallery and then maybe like a little opera bar or something, you know? So wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that? wow. That sounds like, is that upper Mexico or lower Mexico? Yeah, that's about three or four hours drive north of Mexico City, but right in the center of the uh, country. And yeah. the city is about only about 100,000 people, but super mm. famous worldwide for art and music, yeah. protect, protected by UNESCO. I don't know if you know that uh, uh, international yeah. organization sure. as sure. well. Sure. As well as well as the Mexican government, because it's considered a historic city, so it oh, feels wow, like you're it's beautiful. feels yeah, it feels like you're in uh, Sevilla or something, you know, in Spain. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I uh, I debuted in Mexico not that long ago, right before uh, coronavirus hit. I did uh, we did concert performances of Salome with the I guess it's the National Mexican Orchestra at the Palais de Belles Artes, or whatever they call it, uh -huh. the big, beautiful theater there. And that was the first time that I had ever sung in Mexico. 
and it's it called, was interesting to see it. Yeah, it's called Bellas Artes, that theater. That yeah, Bellas Artes. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh -huh. I was astounded how beautiful that place was and how beautiful Mexico City was. Isn't it? And the history there, the ruins and oh. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. When I was a child, I grew up in Oklahoma City, which is not that far away from Mexico. And I remember when I was very small, uh, my parents and I went to Juarez and spent, I think, a couple of days there. And I, the only thing I remember now is uh, seeing the photos of me with a giant sombrero on or sitting on top <laughs> of a sitting on top of a little burro and, you know, things like that. But I remember only snippets of Mexico and then I didn't see it again until this past couple of years ago that I made my debut there in the Salome that we did. That's amazing. Well, I think it was for me 1994, just north of Mexico City is also a town called Querétaro and I sang Carmen in a bullring with a real bullfight. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's amazing. All of the days of Caruso when he used to tour Mexico and, and do that uh, as well. Yeah, you know? wow, that's fantastic. That was so fun. Was it a big uh, bull's ring, bullfighting ring? It was big, yes. Uh, and it wasn't mic'd, so that was pretty difficult yeah. too. <laughs> as I re now I remember that we also went to a bullfight when we were in uh, – I guess we were in Juarez. Maybe we traveled around, but I remember going into the, mm -hmm. the stadium, the ring, to see that, and I was astounded by the, the – it was so not what we have in America, and I was astounded yes. by that. You know, the, the, the architecture of that ancient Roman idea of, of arena and all of that, that opened my eyes immediately. It's an amazing. amazing place. I love Mexico. And and you uh, would would have never thought way back then that you'd end up going back as an international <laughs> opera star singing as an right? inter <laughs> as an international old man and singing <laughs> many years later. <laughs> That's this amazing. True. So in Oklahoma, I told you my parents. Uh, I told you off the air that my parents were uh, both uh, Okies, and yeah. so I got Okie blood in me myself, but. Did you get started in the church there singing or when, how did your no, singing start? Singing was the last thing uh, the, of the trail of things. My parents, I'm the only one, well, myself, my brother and sister are the only Oklahomans. My mother is from Texas and my father was from Kansas. So okay. we were the only ones born in Oklahoma, <laughs> but we were all born. We went to school in Oklahoma City and my mother had always had this kind of aesthetic uh, ideal of um of the the finer things in life not particularly talking about riches but or riches monetarily but riches of of beauty and art and things like that she just had this instinct mm. she was not from any kind of money and she tried to put that uh i don't want to say shove that off onto my brother and sister who are much older than me uh, but she did, you know, with uh, violin lessons and music lessons and all that stuff. At the time that they were young, it was just in Oklahoma and Central America and the Plain States. It just wasn't something that other kids were interested in. Um, my sister was born in 1928 and my brother was born in 1934. 18 years later, I was born. But, wow. but they, at the time that they were kids, it was... <clears throat> 
difficult. You had Dust Bowl, you had uh, the Depression, you had World War II, you had all of these things going on. And music they loved, but it wasn't something they took seriously. Yeah, in the background, that's, yeah. <clears throat> and so uh, my brother did kind of keep on with acting and he studied acting with one of the great acting teachers in the area where we were who taught at public school oddly enough Mabel Conger and he had a promising kind of thing with that with theater as it were mm -hmm. but still that didn't stick you didn't do things like that you got up and you went to a job and you worked nine to five and you did your part and keeping the country going and all of that stuff. Well, 18 years later, I came along. My sister is 24 years older than me. And they, by that time, my parents were better off. The, 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 the neighborhood, let's say, was better managed. It was easier to give me these kinds of, uh, I don't know, these kinds of inspirations that my mother and also my father uh, we're hoping for for all of us and it it stuck with me and the first thing that I went into was piano and I studied mm. piano for quite a long time uh, and then I got into you know the public school system of vocal music the public school choir system the the, the mixed choir the boys choir they used to call it glee club and uh, that's where I first got the taste of performing by singing uh, I had been, I had done several recitals as a kid, you know, I had a piano teacher who had yearly recitals and it was a big thing. And then when I was in junior high school, uh, I had originally decided to enroll in vocal music to play piano for the vocal music, uh, the boys glee club. And it, it turned out that in the summer, the, the woman that had been teaching vocal music in the public school had retired and this young, just out of college, hotshot tenor who had studied at the university where I eventually went, took over her job. And he wanted to have a boy playing for the, uh, the uh, boys glee club. It had always been a girl. So he talked to me during the summer I said, sure, yeah, I'd love to. And then he decided differently when I went into school, when I started that year into the school or into that grade, okay. he, he said, you know, you know, I think I need your voice. I think I need for you to sing. Because, you know, back at that age, guys didn't sing that much and, and organize things like that. And how old were you then? And, well, I was... Uh, I was either 12 or 13, something oh, like that. Oh, okay. It was like, it was the eighth grade, uh, seventh grade. We were not allowed to enroll in vocal music or, or instrumental music. You just took a semester course to get yourself acquainted, but you didn't take the whole year. So the eighth grade was the first year that I could take really a full year of music. And he said, I need for you to sing. I said, okay, I never thought about it, but I'll sing. Um, and he got someone else to play. He went back to the girl idea of playing because he just needed to have the vo the male voices. And that's how I got started with singing. Um, the next year when I was in the last year of junior high school, uh, he got um, adventurous and brave and decided to do a musical production 
in the theater in the you know the theater that school or the auditorium that school had and he decided to do uh the wizard of oz with orchestra he uh, managed to put together a little orchestra and with and we had to build our own costumes and figure out uh-huh. our own makeup and build our own sets but we did this fantastic production you know these kids 12 13 14 years old we put together this production of the wizard of oz and i did the part of the 10 uh, the 10 woodsmen so that was my first time of singing in public in front of an audience up on a stage and i was like 13 maybe 14 years old something like that yes but anyway when i by the time that i was in the 11th grade I was already so deeply into piano and this choral music aspect. And I started thinking about the kids who were in this concert choir that I was in, this elite concert choir, the kids who went to contest, we used to call it contest, choral contest for Oklahoma City area. The kids who did competed in solo work were kids who studied voice privately, which is also who would have ever thought studying singing privately. And I thought, well, that stands to reason. I study piano privately. Why not? Why? What's wrong with them studying voice privately? Yes. So I started asking my, my, our director. I knew that his daughter had just entered college to study piano with a minor in voice at the, the university we all went to. The, the young new director at the junior high, he went to this school. I went to the school. Actually, my director went to this school. In Oklahoma City, which is Oklahoma mm-hmm. City University, okay. and he said, "Well, let me let me find out from that school, Oklahoma City University." And he got in touch, and his daughter got in touch, and they came back, and they said, uh, "You could go there in the preparatory department and take voice lessons and piano lessons there." So I started in their preparatory department, and that this was when I was in the eleventh grade, so I must have been fifteen. Uh, but I entered as a tenor, you know, I studied piano with the piano teacher and I got a voice teacher who eventually, who she stayed there for many years at Oklahoma City University. And she eventually, years after I left, was the teacher of um, uh, Kristen Chenoweth oh, and, okay. uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and uh, what's her name? Kelly O'Hara on Broadway. Okay. Yeah, And uh, she taught quite a few wonderful singers who went on to Broadway and things like that. And she, I started with her. And then when I went on to enter the university as a regular freshman, I switched over to the woman who was head of the, the vocal music department. And I stayed with her for eight years and studied with her for eight years. Inez Lunsford Silberg. When she first heard you, did she identify that you had this unique? instrument or did it take time for that awareness uh, i don't you know it's funny i don't know because uh it it, it, it was a love-hate relationship um ah, okay i mean she how can i say this she i think at the time i was not as uh, um disciplined as she wanted me to be um and dedicated to study and this rubbed her the wrong way so she was always on me all the time 
But at the same time, I was the one that was in the school productions. I was always doing the big roles. I did Faust, I did Pinkerton, I did Duke, uh, Duca, I did, you know, all of, uh, 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 Così Fantuti. I did all of these different roles that we did in the school, in the big productions. And she chose me for that, but still, she was always on me all the time, all the time. And I'm sure she probably had heard something, but she never told me about it. And she never, um, she never made a big thing about, uh, specifically talking about high notes. She never made anything special about that. You sing the way you sing with the technique that you are supposed to sing with that we are working on. And if the music is high, it's the same thing. If the music is low, it's the same thing. The point is the discipline in doing the technique consistently all the time, no matter what notes you are singing. And wow. so I was never, I was never given this idea that there was anything special about high notes other than that they were higher than the middle notes, but nothing was said. Now this is something that sets tenors apart from, I was never taught any of that. I was just so, taught you do it this way or, or else I will kick your ass. You know, that's I basically love that. what I got. So how did you go from when you were younger with maybe a G in choir to now doing Faust with high C's and Rigoletto and Butterfly, were yeah. you aware of a transition in your voice that happened that all of a sudden no. these top notes opened? No, because in the first, let me tell you this, in the freshman year, I switched to her, like I said, I was with the other teacher. <clears throat> and the other teacher was preparing me, basically, to enter the full-time freshman year to study with that teacher because she was her teacher as well so she prepared me for this and i she i was learning art songs uh old italian songs and oratorio things and so i never sang anything really above a g or an a as it is with the uh, usual oratorios bach handles things like that when i entered freshman year with this new teacher mrs silberg I just continued. She continued working on technique with me with these things. She didn't ever even let me sing uh, opera arias. Uh, yeah, I knew that other kids who were ahead of me, who were older than me, they were singing what was opera arias. I never really thought about singing an opera aria because I was so into <clears throat> the art song and the oratorio. In my Second semester of freshman year, she said, okay, I'm going to give you two arias from opera. I think you can handle this. And one of them was Una Furtiva, which was the first one. And the second one was Salut from Faust, from the big wow. Faust aria that has yes. the high C. She never pointed anything out about it. She never said anything about the high C being anything different. It's just a higher note, but it wasn't anything... Out I of the ordinary. That. I love that. And she said, take these, learn them, and we will work on them this uh, this semester. This will be part of your your repertoire for your juries for the second semester. So I went, I learned them, I sang the high C. I mean, it, it, it was a higher note than I had sung, but it was nothing that I found uh, um, uh, inhuman or ungodly. I just sang it, uh, you know. All right. And so I... I, I I just got to stop you right there for the listeners, because what you're talking about is dramatically different in consciousness from your normal student learning to sing opera. 
Do you think yeah. that that consciousness of really not respecting one note over another note is really what enabled that to flourish? I am absolutely sure of it. I am absolutely because now I teach so much and especially teach in Italy where everything began as far as opera is concerned. Yes, yes. And I go there and teach. I teach uh, privately, but I teach mostly master classes in Italy. So I get usually a swatch of 10, 12, 15 students that come to me for a session of master classes. I'll do three, four, five days of master classes with a group of students who have enrolled in my master class. And I notice all of the, just about all of the tenors that come to me are immediately fixated about how to sing high notes. And that it, it, I'm always baffled by that. I always wonder who is it that's telling them or that's making them aware of something different. The first thing you need to learn is how to sing correctly, not go for the high notes. And they are immediately uh, uh, mesmerized and, and hypnotized about the how do you sing high notes thing. And these are guys... I think the youngest I've had was uh, either 18 or 19 and going up to, to 30. I work with tenors who are 30, 32 even. But the younger ones even who are fixated about the high note and I'm trying to teach them things that are the basics of singing, the basics of how to sing in general. And they're kind of like, uh, yes, yes, okay, okay, but how do you do these high that. And it just... It, uh, it baffles me because I don't know how to detach from basic singing or basic technique of yeah. singing to go to something special about high notes. And I keep telling them there's no, there's nothing special about it. If you keep following <laughs> the, if you keep following the foundations of what we're learning with basic technique and vocal study and so on, vocal health, you will eventually be able to use it to sing the higher notes, but there's no special way that you have to yes. uh, redo you. There's no, there's no medical transplant that we can put into you that will make you be able to suddenly poof. You can yeah. sing a high note. Well, that's that, just, yeah, you're it's, it's either there, and there or not there. And it depends on how you work towards it is how you get there. You're, consciousness of what you're talking about and your difficulty to be able to understand how they can't do it is i mean that is a whole nother league of of awareness about pitch and the change of pitch and proper singing that's just not normal you know that right <laughs> that's not common well, in the opera world because even I the most my teacher uh for a long time was giuseppe de stefano you know uh, uh, yeah. He didn't view it in that way. Pavarotti didn't view it in that way. Uh, but I know I tell my students all the time exactly what you're saying. It's not a higher note. It's just a faster note. It's not yeah, upper. Okay. It's, it's not directional. It's not well, directional. Point, and one of the major points I tell my singers and the tenors as well is that the singing needs to be a projection projection of your sound going forward, not going forward upwards, not going forward downwards, going forward. And the usually, if you learn to master that part of it, 
then you will be singing the way you hear people who are professionals and who sing with such a command of line, what we call vocal line, that you don't notice anything out of the ordinary going up or down in there. They're able to project a single arc of singing that is going forward from them rather than going up and down like a like a jumble jet going through turbulence, yes. which is exactly what we don't want. Exactly. But yes. it's hard for them because they are fixated on that uh, almighty high note. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of up is already fixed in them, which also makes them start having problems with raised larynx. Uh, because they're trying to raise up to get the high note. And it's hard to get them away from that feeling and thought and in order to sing a line that's more straight across, straight in front, they're going up and down with these notes like that. Like, like I said, like in a, in a jumbo jet jet going through a thunderstorm, it's all up and down and up and down. And that's very difficult to teach them artistry and legato and line and projection of text and all of that things when they're yes. thinking something completely different. That's it's very difficult. Wow. Very difficult. You should write a book about this, my friend. I yeah, love Yeah, people have told me. <laughs> I love the consciousness of what you're talking about. And I've never heard you know, I was pretty good friends with Jerome Hines and he let me read uh. his his last book before he published it. And even him, this guy who just knew everybody and sang at the Met for decades, yeah. didn't he didn't have that concept that you're referring to either. But I love what you're talking about. Now, may I ask you one question that is out of the genre of your your consciousness? But do you feel, and a lot of uh, other teachers and singers ask m- me this, do you feel that you can mix falsetto as you go up into high notes? Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, see, I came from a technique and from a school of singing that didn't, for men, that didn't really have anything to do with falsetto. Okay. Uh, there was a man in Oklahoma City who taught at the school further south from where I lived in Oklahoma City. And um, kids or students from that school became good friends of mine at the university. They went on to my university as well, and they had studied with him at their school. He was a baritone. Um, and he and many of these friends were basses, were baritones, and they were telling me what they, he would have them to do to sing fully in falsetto and then force or break through the middle voice into the falsetto. Like that, you know, from to force a downward break into the, into the full speaking range middle voice. I've never thought about using falsetto at all to do any kind of vocal study. That wasn't the point. The point was learning how to um, control the singing sound as you're singing, but not to use any particular section of the voice over the other. Uh, we never worked with falsetto okay. or anything like that. But um, I, in singing for what am I, almost 50 years of professional singing, uh, noticed in myself and in other people that there has to be uh, a good access or mixture of 
that kind of vocal uh, production within a normal note. If you're singing it from the passaggio up to the upper notes, there has to be some sort of uh, uh, um, secondary, I, it sounds strange, some sort of secondary feeling of access in that part of the voice in order to be able to, for instance, do a loud into diminuendo into piano yes. of a note like G or A flat. Uh, how can you go off into a diminuendo if you don't have an access to be able to sing directly from the loud note into the soft note? Because the, if you just try to sing yes. it loud all the time and taper off, there's nowhere to taper off unless you're feeling that the secondary or the 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 behind sound, I always say, has a little bit of falsetto in it. But I don't believe in total falsetto in the top notes. Um, that to so, me is a strange thing, and I can't do that. I mean, I can't. Uh, right. I either have a falsetto or I have the regular voice that I'm saying. I can't combine the two. Uh, uh, how do you say? I can't combine them on purpose. It just is a feeling that yes. happens that way. Yes, yes. Yeah, I was talking uh, with Ben Heppner a couple of weeks ago, and he and I asked him a similar question. And he said, I don't think of it in terms of like a falsetto or even getting soft. It's all related to the context of what I'm singing and the emotional yeah. context. The and, emotional as well, yeah. Uh, and that's fascinating. Now, De Stefano talked to me a lot about mezza voce. Yeah. Okay, do you relate to that a little bit more as yeah, when sure. you diminuendo as opposed to falsetto? Yeah, exactly. But I feel that you have to have, well, I don't know. Also, also the, the term of falsetto to me is a little misleading. To me, it feels more like a head voice rather than falsetto. I mean, falsetto to me is really like Faranelli or, you know, uh, well, counter tenors that are... I, I'm talking but, about this this kind of thing. But that kind of voice yeah that to me is not completely when i do falsetto it has no quality to it because uh, it's not a mezzo voce mezzo, it's, off, mezzo it's off the voice but i can't i the only thing that happened but maybe i've sung so long that it just automatically goes to a med uh uh mezzo voce in, instead of a falsetto which yes. is, I mean, a lot of people call it a reinforced falsetto. Yeah, but I think yeah. that's part of the armada that we have to use as tenors to be able, I mean, we have the, we have the worst job of all of singing because we constantly have to sing just below, through the passaggio and just above the passaggio, back and forth and back and forth, yes. which other people don't have to do so often. For a, for a baritone to sing in, into his passaggio means that he's singing a climatic high note. Yes. But he doesn't sing in it all the time. We right. have to go from D to A to D to A all the time through all the melodies, and it's a completely different uh, a and, ball game when we have and, to do that. And you are an absolute master of that, my friend. Listening to you over the really? years, oh no, no, no! You, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, from my as I've gone gotten to be more of a senior citizen and teaching a lot of years after I retired from opera. I have I have experienced a consciousness of not going up and down at all for notes and realize the value of that. So to hear you say that is just 
it's thrilling to me. But I want the people to hear you actually doing it. So I have an aria here uh, of you singing uh, from uh, William Tell, I think it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the greatness of Chris Merritt. Here we go. demonstrating that mastery of going through the passaggio. And if anybody calls what you did on the high notes there, reinforce, reinforced falsetto, they're absolutely crazy. That was... <laughs> well, <laughs> that well, you was... know, it's interesting. When I hear 
my my own voice it's just an innate genetic thing from from my family line i hear my father's voice i mean he wasn't a singer but i can hear the mm -hmm. vocal quality of the time i hear my father's voice i hear uh at least two of his brothers i hear my son's voice i can it's just a yeah a sound a way a way that we phonate that yes. uh i don't know that that makes it sound the way it sounds i can imagine if my father was a tenor and he sang like i mean he tried to sing somewhat you know he sang baritone and choirs and stuff like that after i got into really professional singing he started getting interested and he started trying his hand at it uh and i can hear his sound the way he his phonation happens and the resonance that happens together with that that makes the same kind of sound and i'm not sure i think the beginning of the whole thing is especially with the higher notes is just an innate way our voices are made or our sound is made but like i said my son i can hear that in him mm -hmm. when he speaks and he also sings i can hear the same thing in his mm -hmm. uh and my uh my two uncles who didn't sing at all but i can hear in their speaking voices it just is the merit sound somehow the merit male merit sound um, and maybe that has something to do with it, that it just works that way, that uh, maybe we just, maybe I had this DNA pre-pre uh, um, uh, setup, if you will, of having this way that the upper part of my voice functions. And I often think about that. Maybe my teacher understood that, heard that, and used on me this discipline of how to sing in all parts of the voice rather than shooting for something that was out of the ordinary within the musical vocal line. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that she thought, you know, composers, I don't think were really, uh, when they composed this music, were they really hell bent for leather to make these high notes? I mean, to make them something special or did they really mean for them to be a, an emotional, uh, uh, um, interpretive uh, sector of what the person, the artist was singing. Was it more like that to them? But I have a feeling that it wasn't it wasn't so uh, singular the, these high notes. Also for the sopranos, yes, they use the high notes, but use them as, a, as an expression, an emotional, textual expression of what the musical line is. So I don't know. Uh, it, it's uh, it's one of those enigmas. Now I'm starting to sound like those young tenors coming to me saying, how do you sing a high note? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting but to single it out, I, and I don't really mean to. I love your uniqueness and your approach to this. And I, I uh, talk to my students about in the very early days of written music, some of the earliest manuscripts did not go directionally up and down. They were all on mm. one. They were all on one line. Yeah, and that is more accurately conveying what is really happening because pitch yeah. doesn't go up and down. It goes faster and slower. But uh, it's like uh, we misuse these words up and down, and we misuse yeah. the visual when we say I'm going to the dentist for a check up. What does up have anything to do with it? 
Nothing. With a channel? <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> and we just throw these words here in English. We do that a lot, you know, in, in Spanish. Well, yeah, well, not say, only English. Yeah. It's like... Not only English. Well, true, true. Uh, in uh, in Spanish, they just say, I'm going to the dentist for a check. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or in Italian, they say for a control. There you go. Yeah. Un, un controllo. And it's a, it's a different, yeah, vernac, uh, what do we call it? Uh, uh, um, the language with, that you use to express when you're trying to help somebody understand how to do these things. The language that you t have to teach in is very difficult, too, because I teach in English and German and Italian, Italian. most all the time. And it's very difficult to find because the speaking on the pas la rue, as we say, also in French, when you speak on the street or just normal speaking, is a different vernacular than when you're trying to teach singing lessons, teach someone yes. to sing. Yes. And then you have to start trying to search for things that give them the ideas because singing is so abstract. There's no way other to, to describe it other than abstract. You can't, you can't pick up an instrument and, and make different uh, push different things to make notes happen. You have to be right. in control of something that you can't touch in the first place. So it's, it's, yes. and you have to be able to have a vernacular or a word uh, association ability in that language. What works in English doesn't work in German. What works in German doesn't yeah. work in Italian. Yeah. That's also very difficult. So when you were, all of those things are absolutely true. Although when you were referring earlier to uh, that your consciousness was never really about going up or down or pitches, it's just about good singing. What, yeah. what are the ABCs of your, quote, good singing? What is that to you? Well, the, fir the first thing that I tell my students is to always remember that your voice is your breath and your breath is your voice. The two cannot exist separately or one without the other. If we don't have breath coming out of us in order to initiate the vocal cords to phonate, then that won't work. If you try to make a sound without having breath to do that, that won't work. You have to, you have to feel. I use a lot of feeling. Uh, I noticed that a lot of kids learn technical things from other teachers. And that that they learn from the other teacher, they try to set it aside and manipulate it as if it was a, a sector over here that needs to be going on while they're singing. Mm -hmm. And I tell them that will never work because what you're trying to learn technically has to be a part of your whole uh, physical being. It can't be separated. You can't separate the two. You can't separate air from breath. You can't separate breath from air. You can't separate uh, what we call support in Italian called appoggio. You can't separate that from, I notice that many of them try to, when they sing a high note, do a, mm, a type of detached uh, muscular manipulation while they're singing in order to sing an upper note or a, a higher note. And it's like two different things are happening at the same time. And it, that baffles me. I don't understand how they, because as far as I'm teaching my students, it all has to be organically working together the way mechanically a clock or a watch works inside. Mm. 
one little part of it works together with the other in order to make that hand go around. And you can't really uh, uh, isolate one of those aspects of singing when you're actually performing. Yes, take it apart in the practice room, try to understand what it is you're feeling, what it is that goes together with the singing. But when you put it all back together, it all has to be one big mechanical thing and not separate little things that you're always thinking about. Unless you have a big problem about something. If there's a problem, a vocal problem, uh, a supporting problem, a breath problem, uh, whatever, a physical problem, tightness, rigidity, all those different things, you have to work that out with your teacher and how to not do those things or how to do something instead of that that is beneficial for your singing. But I tell them all the time, there's, it all has to work together. Don't try to focus so specifically on one thing that you forget that you're singing or that you forget that you have to sing legato or that you forget that you're keeping the voice spinning out in the big gira la voce, which is the spin of the voice. You have to be able to feel all of these things together. It's much, I tell them, it's much like a pilot flying the plane. The pilot flying the plane knows about these different things that he has in front of him. But in the end effect, that flying forward through the air is the thing that is important. And if you don't keep your eye on that, you can't, uh, those other little uh, uh, mechanisms that are working to help you fly the plane won't mean anything because the plane will be falling to the earth if you're not remembering to fly, to actually fly the plane, to feel Great. it in your in your arms, in your hands. Great. Anyway, but, that, but that's, that's one thing that I use. I mean, I use airplane and jets because everybody's basically set in a jet, a big jet. You feel when it takes off, you feel when it levels off, you feel that forward motion. Those are feelings that you can relate to inside mm -hmm. your body while you're singing. Thank God for good stories. Yes, sir. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thank you I will again. let you get on with your... Thank you yeah. very much for having me and for giving me these words of wisdom. Oh, what an honor. I thank you for your wisdom ah. <laughs> and, and how you have blessed the world for so many years. God bless. Thanks oh, again. Oh, thank you. You are kind. Thank you. Take care, brother. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here on the Daniel Hendrick Experience. We are every Sunday interviewing famous opera singers from around the world and i appreciate you being here and if you get a chance go to my website danielhendrick.com and there you can find more about me and also pick up a copy of my book which is about my life story of being an international opera singer so until next time god bless all of you and see you next sunday Take on.